Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there. And welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers podcast with your host, Didi Hussain. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this show on all three seasons on all the major audio platforms. If you're tuning in via YouTube, don't be cheeky. Remember to click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Today's esteemed guest is joining us from the United States for his first UK tour. He's a celebrated academic, writer and activist, and that's none other than Sean King. Brother, good to see you. Glad to be here with you, man. Thank you for honoring us with your presence, Sean. No, it's, it's my honor. How's the UK been so far? It's been good, man. The people have been wonderful. I mean, I'm only regretting that we have to leave. Um, we've sold out all of our tour dates. The people have been wonderful. We've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for Gaza, and we've been able to encourage the people inform the people so it's been good man we will be in london later we'll be in oxford tomorrow uh we're going to ireland and so it's it's been good for me too man it's encouraged my soul now you've been to the uk before but this is your first proper tour right yeah absolutely i've been here with my family just as a tourist but uh to be here in this uh this way has been good uh, what's the vibe you get from brits from britain generally Oh man, uh, it's been a great vibe, you know, great energy. People have been incredibly supportive. Uh, people are super informed. And this is a different time where uh, people aren't just getting their information from BBC or from the newspapers. People now are following people like you or me or others to get kind of on the minute information about what's going on in the world. Now in the States, free speech laws, I would argue are far more relaxed in comparison to the UK. Uh, there's a lot of censorship in the UK. Uh, so the way I frame my questions to you, I hope you understand that it is very much because of this very McCarthy's draconian environment that we're currently living under and have been increasingly for the last three months. But let's look at the events of October the 7th, a very polarized event. For millions, Muslims and non-Muslims, this was an inevitable act of resistance of a people who have been besieged for nearly 16 years. For others, it was the worst attack against Jews since the Holocaust. Where do you fit in this? Well, first, I don't really see it as an attack against Jews. Uh, and I, so I wouldn't frame it that way. You know, I know they frame it that way. Yeah, they, they were quick to frame it that way. But you could go back all the way to even the founding of Hamas. And you'll find Hamas's founders saying that they have no problem with Jews. And this has nothing to do about a beef between Muslims and Jews. And in fact, the founders were very careful to say for them, uh, if Muslims had taken their land. In fact, uh, one of the founders said, if his own brothers had stolen this land, that they would be at war with their brothers. If Muslims had stolen the land, they would be at war with Muslims. It just so happened that it, it was primarily Jews that stole the land. But he said even then that our problem still is not with Judaism or with Jews, but it is with the government. And so uh, October 7th, I, I think we really have hardly had nuanced conversations about what October 7th was. I will go all the way back to my very first post that I made about October 7th. I took a day to think about it, and I was respectful to understand that for millions of people, 
October 7th was very painful. I respect that. I have nothing but respect for the fact that some people were grieved and pained by what happened. There's no need for any of us to deny that. But my very first post really pulled on my background as a historian. My undergraduate and graduate degrees are in history. And in my first post, I posted a picture of a movie about Nat Turner. Uh, Nat Turner was an enslaved man who in 1831 in Southampton County, Virginia, in the United States, led what is seen as the most successful revolt of slaves in the United States. And I decided to frame it that way for a very particular reason, because Nat Turner is universally seen as a hero among African-Americans. And you will rarely find anybody, a history book or anywhere else, speak ill of Nat Turner. But when Nat Turner and just a group of five or six men from the plantation where people owned them, Nat Turner was purchased and bought, sold, traded. They first took over the plantation that they lived on. And when I say took over, they killed the men, women, and children on their plantation. Now, these were men who had never killed anybody before. They had never even punched or harmed a person before. They killed the owners on their plantation, recruited a few more men to their team, moved to the next plantation, and killed every white person on that plantation, including elders, children, babies. I talked about this in my post, and I said, let's, before we talk about October 7th, this is what I said in my post, let's grapple with this first with Nat Turner. Eventually they killed about 200 people on multiple plantations. Their goal was to take over an armory and eventually build some kind of black militia that would be able to defend itself. I asked my audience, was it wrong for Nat Turner and the other men and women that they recruited to their team? Was it wrong for them to kill anyone? Who was it wrong for them to kill? Should they have only killed men? What about the women that were horribly abusive and, and uh, that, that also owned them? They were co-owners of them. Mm-hmm. What about the elders? <clears throat> the elders might not have been abusive in their old age, but those elders used to be younger people who were active in the slave trade. What about the children? And my audience understood that those are complex questions. Most of my audience said, no, I understand. When you have been so horribly, extremely oppressed for so long, it makes sense to act out in that way. And the point I was trying to make is when anybody in the world is so severely oppressed, starved, beaten, murdered, slaughtered, as the Palestinian people have been now for generations, eventually they will act out. They will respond. And when Nat Turner and his band of brothers first took over the plantation where they had been forced to work their entire lives, they didn't have guns. They didn't have knives. They literally pulled up the wooden post from fences and beat men, women, and children to death with wooden posts, with shovels, with farm tools. And let's be clear, it was gruesome and ugly because 
poor people then, now, including Palestinians, don't have planes, don't have tanks, don't have armies. Poor people have to kill you face to face. Poor people have to kill you up front. The other side would say, okay, Sean, that's a nice example. But those who took part in October the 7th in Al-Aqsa flood, they had guns. They have homemade missiles. They have Iranian weapons. They have the Yassin missiles and rocket launchers and stuff like this. We see it in their Red Arrow videos and all of that. So is that really a fair comparison? Well, there is no one-for-one one comparison. And so I, I accept some of the critique to say what happened in 1831 will never be a perfect comparison to what happened in 2023. But the spirit and principle of it is true that when you marginalize and oppress and demonize a people so much, they eventually will gather whatever they can from whoever they can, and they will respond and it will be painful and it will be ugly. So the people of the world need to understand that anywhere, not, not just in this region, anywhere in the world, eventually the most oppressed people will respond and it will be painful, it will be violent, this is the history of the world. You, you could go back 10,000 years of human history. It is not natural. It, we are not wired as humans to perpetually allow ourselves to be oppressed. And just like with Nat Turner, though, Nat Turner couldn't vote. Uh, Nat Turner could not, he, he could not win his freedom in any way other than what he did. And... Palestinians, so many of their rights have been stripped and removed that these men on that day, it was their belief that this was the best way for them to achieve their goals. Now, we could debate that for years and years. Have they achieved their goals? Was it actually effective? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm grappling with that myself. Was, was it worth it? I, I don't know. That's a question I've asked so many of our guests. Yeah. Was it worth it? Was Alaksa flood worth it? So I I saw, I, I spoke a moment ago about uh, one of the founders of Hamas. And he said that he felt like the Palestinian people had been given two options. He said, either we have a humiliating peace that is... We just accept what we've been given and it's degrading and humiliating and embarrassing and inhumane. And it's called peace. Either we have his words were a humiliating peace or we fight back. And he said, both options have real critiques, real challenges. And he said, the humiliating peace is not sustainable. And what he said in the, in the founding of Hamas is we are trying to find a way to have a peace that's actually true, an honest peace, a true peace. And he talked about even the spirit of Islam being peace. And he said, but the peace we have now is degrading. And October 6th in Gaza, in the West Bank, was deeply inhumane. It's wrong to call that peace. I see Israelis saying, hey, there was a ceasefire on October the 6th. No, no, there wasn't. 
it, it was a humiliating existence to live this way. And so, you know, was it worth it? I don't even think it would ever be fair for me to answer that. Palestinian people will have to answer that. And I don't think there will ever be a yes or no answer. Um, certainly, I knew by the evening of October the 7th that what was going to be visited upon the Palestinian people was going to be atrocious. And certainly, uh, the men uh, who uh, performed the attack on October the 7th also had to predict and understand that. But I don't even know if they understood that the response would be what it has been. And that is going to be our next uh, topic of discussion. But before we move on to that, on the related uh, issue of a humiliating peace or what was life like on October the 6th, um, Zionists uh, and those who support colonial settlerism, they will say, look, hold on, we, we retreated. We moved all the Jewish settlements in 2006, seven. You voted, you had an election, you chose Hamas. So what is this about? You don't have freedom. What is this about? You had a choice and you chose an organization who wants to see the end of this entity. How, how do we, how do you respond to that? Well, I mean, I, I would encourage people to actually study the reality of what life was like in Gaza on the 6th, in 2022 and 2021, first, Israel was perpetually brutal to Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Jerusalem. Uh, people even need to investigate, why was it called the Alaska Flood? What, why was it named that? What was happening at the Alaska Mosque? People were being brutally humiliated there. Uh, everywhere they could, Palestinians were being degraded and humiliated. The blockade did not start on October the 7th or the 8th. Mm -mm. There was a blockade of resources all year, all generation, for decades. And so it was already difficult to get food, to get clean water. It was already difficult to move. Palestinians used to have an airport. Uh, Palestinians used to be able to move freely in their land and out of their land. So it was already functionally described by the leading human rights organizations in the world as apartheid. This was in 2021, 2022, groups like the Human Rights Watch. Amnesty. Yeah, Amnesty International. B.T. Salem. They had, B.T. Salem is important. This is a Jewish organization. As a matter of fact. An Israeli Jewish organization. Yeah, human Rights Watch was, uh, at the time when they released a 100-page report describing why uh, Palestine was in essence, an apartheid state, uh, was led by a Jewish man. And Human Rights Watch was really the most respected human rights organization in the world. I challenge people in 2021, 2022, read these reports, see the facts. So this was an apartheid state on October the 6th. Eventually, anybody experiencing something akin to apartheid, and even that word apartheid was insufficient. Uh, it was the best word that those organizations knew to use. It was something uniquely its own thing. I don't even know that there is quite a word. We call it settler colonialism. We call it apartheid. But it is there was a difference between the two, five viewers and listeners? Because there'd be lots of Gen Z 
uh, youngsters who, who are coming, they're hearing these terms for the first time. They wouldn't know that apartheid resonates with apartheid South Africa. Um, settler colonialism resonates with the Irish Troubles. They wouldn't know this. Is there a difference between the two, between an apartheid system and settler colonialism? Yes and no. I mean, they. I'm, I'm glad that both phrases are being used, but in some ways we're grasping for straws to describe the very unique degradation of the Palestinian people at the hands of Israelis. And apartheid really just deals in great part with your inability to live and move freely. It's about having an outside force that controls almost every facet of your life and society from the amount of electricity you get per day, from how much water you can get. When people, when the world learned that Israel had banned the collection of rainwater, that it was illegal in Gaza to set out buckets and collect rainwater, not on October 8th, but in perpetuity before October 7th, when I didn't know that, I, I even had to investigate, is this true? And I literally saw the documentation that like, no, it was, it was illegal on October 6th to have penicillin sent in. It was illegal to have essential medications sent in. During the COVID, the vaccinations were not going in. And so that is what apartheid is, is about the control the overt control of every possible resource, decision, travel, movement. Apartheid is about needing to show your identity. It's about being beaten and humiliated. S study what happened in South Africa to understand apartheid. In some ways, in South Africa, there was also settler colonialism. We don't typically use that phrase. In essence, historically, that's what it was. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, that is settler colonialism. It's is Europeans it, in South Africa. That's what it was. I mean, let, let's talk about it. My, my, family, my family and I lived in South Africa for most of 2014. Mm. And even then, a generation after apartheid, we could not believe that white people in South Africa owned, in essence, every beautiful piece of property in the entire country. Crazy. Every beachfront property, every farm, Almost every piece of land that was uh, bigger than the average home was owned by white people. It was, we, we were shocked. Every business, every hotel. And this is a generation after apartheid. And so Europeans had in essence taken over every diamond mine, every resource, and a generation later still owned them as this tiny minority. Settler colonialism is about people taking over your land and calling it their own. Apartheid is about the control of those people over your lives. So those phrases I think work, but they're insufficient. I wish there were other words that were just uniquely created for, for, for what the Palestinian people have experienced. For the last three months, we've seen apocalyptic yeah, dystopian levels of violence yeah. meted against the people of Palestine, uh, Gaza death toll th more than 30,000 of which 12 13,000 are children I'm sure there's many more under the rubble and yeah. unaccounted for repeated genocidal statements by senior Israeli officials including Netanyahu the president 
um, hundreds of TikTok videos of IDF soldiers mocking, taunting. Committing war crimes. Committing war crimes. Posting them themselves. Yeah. Even after the ICJ ruling yeah. of last month. What makes this particular war on Gaza different to any other in the past? So there was, there was bombing in 2021, 2014. There's been many military operations by the Zionist entity into Gaza. What's made this particular one different? Well, there, uh, there are probably four or five things that make this moment we're in now particularly unique. One, just the sheer size and scale of it. We, we have never had a moment in our lifetime where this number of Palestinians have been killed, where this number of homes, mosques, schools, community centers have been destroyed. The very streets have been destroyed. Utilities have been destroyed. 80% of the infrastructure finished, demolished. My, my son and I, we watch all types of films about apocalypse. Like we watched The Walking Dead together. Mad. I have never seen a single film about an apocalypse on earth that made the earth look as bad as Palestine looks now. There has never been a fictional story about an apocalypse that looks as destructive and horrible as what we see. So this moment is different for so many reasons, but this is the first time it's in 2021 and 2014, me and you were following that. Yep. But now the eyes of the entire world are on it. Billions of people, not even millions or hundreds of millions. Billions. Billions of people are watching it and billions of people are coming to the same conclusion as us, that this is genocide, that this is atrocious. All of that is uniquely different. And they're coming to that conclusion because for the first time, they're not getting their news from mainstream news sources. They're getting their news directly from the people experiencing the genocide. It's not filtering through a newscaster. It's not even filtering through me and you. They are learning the names, the stories, the personalities of men and women there. I did a poll before my Instagram account was, was banned and removed. I did a poll of my followers and tens of thousands of people responded. I asked them two questions. How many of you knew the name of a single Palestinian before October the 7th? And almost 80% of my followers said, I could not name any Palestinian in America or abroad, anywhere. Wow. And after October the 7th, I said, how many of you now know the name of a Palestinian? Almost 90% of them now knew the name of someone there. That's profound because it's easy to move on from a link, a news story, a, a statistic, that you, that you can't connect with, that you don't can't put a name or face to. Yeah, it's hard to move on from a person. Mm -hmm. And the world is now following, not news accounts, they're following actual people. They're praying for them, they're grieving with them, they're crying with them and for them. And it has made this genocide and this moment deeply, deeply personal. Uh, another thing that's uniquely different is the propaganda of Israel, the United States, and the UK that would typically just be accepted as fact is now being fact-checked in real time. And I don't think any of the nations and, and warmongers of the world 
in part because of the generation they come from, understood how quickly regular everyday people would see through their lies. I, I, I very much credit young people and often teenagers on TikTok who would see these lies being told and in almost real time would turn their cameras on themselves and explain to the world why what they just heard from Israel or the United States or the UK was a complete fabrication. So let's look at five of the biggest lies told. 40 beheaded babies. Yep. Mass rapes yep. of hundreds of women. Um, babies cooked in ovens. Uh, Hamas tunnels in Al Shifa Hospital. Yeah. Uh, which other madness was there? Uh, 3,000 UNRW workers were Hamas fighters. Yeah. So I, I, there's many others. I mean, I mean, I, there's dozens, but these five are the ones that stood out. Well, those lies were so insidious and so destructive. Like, first, let me say that if there were 40 beheaded babies, I would speak out against it. Of course. I would say it was disgusting, of horrific, course. and abomination. Of course. And, and no matter who did it, hundred percent. If referencing something we said earlier, if if my friend did that, if you, if anyone I knew did anything of the sort, I would not be conflicted in my heart and soul to call it out. And so I immediately began investigating: Is this true? Where is the facts? And thankfully, independent and mainstream journalists in Israel simply began asking a very basic question that I was asking. Can you please, I asked it earnestly, can you give me the names of these children? I asked Pierce Morgan, he couldn't answer. Yeah, can you? Can one child. Yeah. Just give me the name of one child. Well, that's where, I, that's where eventually what I got down to. Can you tell us, can you tell us their locations? Can you tell us their family names? Because what started happening after even say a natural disaster, a tornado or a hurricane, the names of victims start to be released. Of course. And so all the names of victims started coming out and people started noticing there are no babies on these lists. I counted Israeli government officials named about 120 deaths of babies from, they said babies that were hung on clotheslines, oh, yeah. babies that were baked in ovens, mm -hmm. Babies that were beheaded, babies that were cut out of their mother's bellies. Oh, yes, of course. They named, they, they described the slaughter of about 120 babies. David Lammy, uh, who was part of the opposition Labour Party. And, and I know David. He said babies were raped. And so, Joe Biden, the President of the United States, my S home country. Said he saw the evidence. He said he saw the video. Not only did he say he saw the video... He then looked at the camera and said, I never thought I would see anything like that in my life. That's a straight lie. He completely made this up. So when members of the Israeli press simply began asking, I think they, they believed it as well. Can you name, we want to interview these families. We want to tell the stories of these children. It began unraveling almost immediately. And eventually it got to where people like me, you, but those Israeli journalists were just saying, will you tell us the name of one child that was beheaded? Can you tell us the name of the mother who had her baby cut out of her stomach? I literally told Piers, tell me so I can mourn and condemn with you. 
Yes, no, I mean, I mean that earnestly. And I mean that. And eventually we, we came to learn that it was all a fabrication. And let me say, even as I tell you, it makes my blood boil. I never in my life could I even imagine a scenario where I would ever tell such a lie. I don't even know who would tell such a lie. And they told them. And in fact, again, about Joe Biden, the White House corrected him by the end of that day. Yep. He should, it was such a despicable thing. The mainstream media never really even made a big deal about it. A month later, he told the same lie again, that again, he saw videos of babies that had been beheaded. It never happened. And we have to ask ourselves, why did they tell these? They're saying now they told the lies because of PTSD. They told the lies because they were traumatized. I speak as someone who had previously been diagnosed with PTSD. It does not make you tell lies about babies being beheaded. If PTSD made you say that babies were beheaded, every time anyone got PTSD, they would say, I just saw beheaded babies. Mm -hmm. That's not a symptom of PTSD. PTSD does not make people say babies were cooked in ovens. PTSD does not make people say babies were cut out of stomachs. They made these lies up to justify what they knew they were about to do. To commit a genocide, you have to dehumanize people so much that people think they deserve what's coming to them. Absolutely. And if people had done all the things that we just described, they knew that the world would look at it and say, that's awful, but do you know what they did? And so now we see Israeli news sources beginning to question not just mass rapes, but are beginning to question all instances of sexual assault. There was the leading newspaper in the United States is the New York Times. It is the single most respected, award-winning publication in our country. Pull their podcast. Yeah, and they they had a, a massive news story about mass rapes of members of Hamas raping women. And that story has unraveled so much that first, the, the primary woman whose story they describe, her family has come out to say that the author of that New York Times story abused them, misused them, and that their daughter, their sister, was not sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. That, again, should have been headline news all over the world. So much so that the leading podcast of the New York Times that was about to do a major episode about that article, that podcast has had to admit that that story didn't pass their fact check. Yep. So you have one group in the New York Times <laughs> telling another group in the New York Times we can't repeat your story because it doesn't pass our fact checking. Now, Israeli news sources are saying that the primary sources in that New York Times article are grossly inaccurate and are not reliable. So anyone that would lie about babies being beheaded would lie to you about anything. And so at this point, I don't trust anything that any government official of Israel tells me. I didn't before October the 7th, but I never will again. And I think more and more people in the world are starting to understand. 
I don't even think that propaganda is sufficient. These are genocidal words. These are these were words created, designed to justify war crimes. Propaganda is is insufficient to describe that. Now let's look at the U.S., your home country. Um, I believe you left the Democrats uh, in 2016. Yes. Um, would it be fair to call the Biden administration complicit or collaborators? Oh, they're. They are co-conspirators. The, the, the entire United States government, and in fact, I think the entire United States population, myself included, and the entire population of the UK, we are paying for this. With our taxes. Yeah, our taxes fund this. So in some way, even though it's, it's not with our permission, in some way, we are all responsible. Now, it's being done against our wishes, against our demands, against our protest. But we are funding it. The United States and the UK are the primary funders of this. So all of us and a huge majority of the people that will listen to this and see this, we are funding it. Our hard work funds these atrocities. But the Biden administration and the U.S. government, they aren't just silent partners. They are collaborators, planners, strategists, funders, armors. Over 85% of all the weapons that Israel uses come from the United States. And so they aren't silent partners. They are strategic allies in every single way. There's weapons being manufactured in the UK, Elbit systems and others that are literally being used in Gaza as we speak. Yes, th these are crimes. What we see now, really for the first time in my lifetime, is international bodies like the International Criminal Court, or the, rather the International Court of Justice, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully the International Criminal Court will eventually rule on this, but the International Court of Justice and others saying that this is very much a genocide, therefore these weapons are being used to commit war crimes, are being used to do mass atrocities. So no, our governments are not uh, you know, far away partners None of this could happen without them. It, you would not have this genocide without the United States. Do you think Genocide Joe has lost a significant portion of the Muslim Arab vote? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've, I've been to Dearborn, Michigan, where the Wall Street Journal just called it like the capital of jihad. Understanding the Middle East through the animal kingdom by Thomas L. Friedman. Wow. Uh, here's the th if that ever happened, to any other group of people, he would be fired. As a matter of fact, if I did that and I worked for the New York Times, it's bonkers, bro. I would have lost. This is a headline. And he begins to compare different people and groups and nations in the Middle East to pest. The, that, is out, that is also genocide. He's using, it is a well-known fact of genocide that one strategy that you do is you compare the people to animals that human beings don't like. Human animals. And so- It was a language that was used very early on. Yeah, he compares different groups and people in his article to, uh, to wasp, to gnats, to mosquitoes, things that you want to kill, things that you want to go away. He is, he is one of the most respected writers in the United States, and is probably the most highly paid writer for the New York Times. So much so that I don't think they edit him. I say that I say that as someone who knows 
people at the New York Times, I don't, outside of people correcting grammar in his article, I think he gets to choose his own headlines, his own words, and he gets no editing. It's dangerous what he just did. And so the entire media apparatus of our countries are supporting this and defending it in ways that are disgusting. If it wasn't for social media, for those of us that would never be allowed to speak in the New York Times, if we weren't allowed to have our own platforms the way we do, I don't know that the world would even understand what's going on right now. On the subject of social media now, your Instagram account was shut down. Before it was shut down, how many followers did you have? Uh, almost 6 million followers. And I, I want to say to you that for me, that was a community of, like, I cared deeply about everyone there. It took me a decade to build, to that. build that community. Like, I didn't see it as, as just my account or just as a platform for me to speak. Like, there were men and women there that I loved, people that I had fought for, victims of police brutality in the United States, I cared as much about losing all my direct messages. I had hundreds of conversations going with people in Gaza, in the West Bank that I've lost. I had messages with my, with my wife and children that I lost. I'd never even been suspended from Instagram before. And in a matter of days, they suspended me and then permanently banned me and told my attorneys that they permanently deleted all of my data and my entire account. So where, where are you at with the, with, is there a legal case happening so, against Meta? So let me tell you, on the night of Christmas Eve, uh, literally my, my family and I are sitting around enjoying each other's company. Like most people around the world, our hearts were broken and shattered. Even celebrating and acknowledging these holidays was awkward and different for us. Same for nearly 2 billion Muslims, brother. Yeah. And so we were there just enjoying each other's company when I was about to make a post about Gaza, I couldn't log into my account. And I thought maybe I had been hacked. And within minutes of trying to log into my account, I got a personal message from a staffer, an attorney at Meta, saying that your account has been suspended for supporting terrorism. That's a very rare thing. You rarely get an attorney, was it a DM or an email? No, was it? it was an email from it was an email from a Muslim attorney oh, wow. that, that works at Meta that I've, I feel strongly that Meta has used in part to put a Muslim face on their Zionist decisions. It was, it was particularly painful for her to be the one they used to email me to say, we have suspended your account for supporting terrorism. And I had made a post two days prior with no image or graphic. It was a just type in my, in my image. I said an open letter to the men of Yemen. And I wrote a very heartfelt thank you to the men and to the men and their families of Yemen for doing what they were doing in the Red Sea because they had publicly said, and I believe it to this very moment, that they were doing everything within their power to stop this genocide. And in my message, I was begging them, please do not stop this under any circumstance. I never used the word Houthis. 
But about three weeks prior to that, I had several posts of mine that had been removed and I had posted videos of Israeli hostages being released. And I was actually not just proud that they had been released, but I was very proud that they had been released in good health and good condition. And I shared those videos as a, I, I see myself as a human rights leader to say, this is the ethical treatment of hostages. That if you have hostages, here is how they should be treated. Sean, but some or many from the other side would watch this, especially in the context of UK law now, and say, well, hold on, you can thank the men of Yemen, but ultimately it is the Houthis, and Houthis is a prescribed group in the UK. And yes, you can say that the hostages look well-kept and well-looked after, well-fed, not malnutritioned or tortured and so forth, but their captors are a prescribed outfit. So... When, when they removed those posts of me showing the videos of the hostages being released, Instagram, uh, people from Meta wrote me and said, we are removing these posts because Hamas in the United States, I live in the United States, Meta is an American company. Hamas is listed as a terrorist group by the United States government. So I understood moving forward that it would be difficult or impossible for me to post something like that without risking my account. But in the United States at that time, the Houthis had been removed from our terror list. Three years ago, it was Joe Biden himself that removed them from the terror list. So I felt that it was safe for me to tell these stories about the men of Yemen, but about you the Houthis. But, but did you mention Houthis ever explicitly? Well, I never mentioned them, but I believed even that I could if I wanted to, because they were not on the terror list. So, when I made that post around December 22nd, an open letter to the men of Yemen, I truly honestly believed that I was safe in doing so because I had been told previously that my content was removed because Hamas was on the American terror list and the Houthis were not. So I replied to that email that I received late at night on Christmas Eve to say, how, how could you suspend my account for supporting terrorism when two things, the, the Houthis have killed no one, and to my knowledge at that time and even to this very day, have actually injured no one, and the Houthis are not on the American terror list. They replied and said, we have our own private list, and on our own company list, the Houthis are on there. I replied and said, where is the list? I haven't seen it. You didn't tell me this. And so what we see in some ways is Meta, the company, in some ways acting like a nation state, having their own designated list of terrorist organizations. I said, who created the list? Who are the experts that did this? Are you aware that the Houthis are working very, very hard with the United Nations to normalize themselves, to, to create a new standard of human rights in Yemen? They're working on all of these things. Are you aware that they're working even with the Biden administration to become a more mainstream nation? This is happening. Mm -hmm. It was happening. I got no response. And, and at that time, Meta went almost completely silent with me. I contacted my attorneys and was told that we had 15 days to appeal my account being suspended 
or you're no longer allowed to appeal. For 14 days, Meta refused to even reply to my attorneys. On day 15, they finally agreed to meet with our attorneys. I was supposed to be in that meeting. Meta, Meta then told our attorneys that they would not be meeting with Meta's attorneys, but that Meta had hired outside counsel just for my case. The outside counsel that they hired were open Zionists. It's a Zionist law firm that they hired. So it's never Meta lawyers. It's, it's, they've outsourced. They, Meta, previously, the attorney that had contacted me about my account being suspended was mm -hmm. a Meta attorney. Now Meta has hired outside counsel to engage my attorneys on this. And they were Zionists. And so and this is a Zionist law firm that represents Israel and Israeli interests. They have offices in Israel. And so my attorneys and I game planned for how we thought this, this meeting was very important, important to me. And my attorneys took my case in part, not just to represent me, but we felt that the precedent that had been created by suspending me was a dangerous precedent that very could be dangerous. used against anybody. Very dangerous. We thought there were 10 different responses that Meta's attorneys could, could respond with. And the worst response, if, if one response is, we are restoring your account, here's what we're asking you to do differently. The worst response we thought was, we are upholding your suspension, but we are allowing you to appeal to the Meta Oversight Board. Your listeners may not know this, but the Meta Oversight Board is actually in London. It's an, it's an autonomous board that is wholly separate from Meta, the corporation. In fact, they're not allowed to, ha to have ever held stock in Meta. They're not allowed to have ever worked for Meta. And in fact, they are very much at odds with Meta. Who pays their salaries? So it's a very good question. Four years ago, uh, Meta Corporation gave them a $250 million grant to create the Meta Oversight Board. Mm -hmm. But since that board has been in existence, that board is very much adversarial to Meta the Corporation. Their job is, in essence, to correct the mistakes of Meta. So very much so, you could imagine, the Meta Corporation, even though they had a hand in creating it, because it's an independent autonomous board, mainly with human rights attorneys on it, we felt like if we have to appeal to this board, we may, we may win. My attorneys went into the meeting thinking that the worst case was you're suspended, but you can appeal to this board. My attorneys thought that that meeting would last about an hour. It lasted less than five minutes. Meta's attorneys started the meeting off by saying, there won't be much conversation here. We have deleted Sean King's account. Everything. We have deleted all of his data. <sighs> Sean King no longer has an Instagram account. And to appeal to the Meta Oversight Board, you have to have an account. Therefore, Sean King cannot appeal to the Meta Oversight Board. Because you don't have an account. You don't have an account. So they waited to the 15th day when, for us to appeal to the Meta Oversight Board, to ever respond to us, to have the meeting. And they completely deleted all of my data, all of my account. My attorneys were flabbergasted. They had never seen or heard of such a thing. Donald Trump was suspended from Meta, from Instagram and Facebook, was allowed to appeal to the Meta Oversight Board and won his account That's back. Bad, yeah. But I'm being told, listen, I have spoken at Meta. I have been a guest speaker at Facebook headquarters. 
Several months ago, Meta reached out to me and asked me to try new features. Over the, the four months of this genocide, Meta regularly asked me to mediate conflicts that they were having with Palestinian voices about how to use content. I know staff up and down the organization, never been suspended before. And for them to delete my account and then say you no longer even have an opportunity to appeal, it shocked the hell out of us. That makes it even worse because I wasn't even privy to this knowledge. I just thought Sean had a massive account and now he's got an ongoing legal case. He's going to appeal it. That's as much as I knew. I'm, so, I'm sorry, but, but you actually have been doing stuff with Meta. You've been working, spoken at the events. So this makes it even worse because there's an existing relationship there. I was so close with executives at Meta that I texted them on their private cell phone numbers. They would wish me happy birthday. If I was sick, they would write me to check on me. Every one of those executives, I, I will not name them by name just to be dignified. They've all gone silent. And as, and Meta's attorneys asked my attorneys for me to never contact any Meta employees again. These were people that I actually saw, many of them were, Mark Zuckerberg's wife has donated millions of dollars to my organization. I, I believed wrongly that I was in a protected class. I was, I was naive and blinded to the reality that this was possible. I thought I was more privileged than I actually was. Do you think that's why I hurt you more? I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely asking. That you, it that didn't hurt me more, it surprised me. Now, I would only say that two or three staff members at Meta that I actually think, I, there were some that were my associates, two or three I believe to be my friends. Mm. Seeing them disappear and bail out, that did hurt me. Knowing that I had I had been, I feel used that I, that I saw myself as a mediator. I was a proud power user of Meta's products. I have Facebook pages. I, WhatsApp is a, is a Meta product. So our attorneys still filed an appeal with the Meta Oversight Board, not knowing if they would even accept it. So we, have fi we filed that appeal about a month ago we received an email from their staff saying, we, we are acknowledging receipt of your appeal and we need about a month to tell you whether or not we're going to take your case. Now, we feel like we found a technicality. Did they mention anything about that clause that the Zionist lawyer said about you have to have an account in the first place to appeal to the board? Well, the actual policy states that you have to have an Instagram or Facebook account to appeal and they did not delete my Facebook account. Mm -hmm. Now we're appealing about my Instagram page, but the policy does not say you have to have an Instagram account to appeal to the Instagram account. We feel that we found a technical loophole to appeal. So I have a public Facebook page, a private Facebook account. So we feel like we found a loophole to still file the appeal. We think we will learn in the next week whether or not they accept our appeal then they say on their website that once they accept your case, it takes three to four months for them to rule. There is a tiny chance that they will take the case, an even smaller chance that they will restore my account. 
I won't say that I'm moving on. I, I, I would like to have my account back. More than that, I would like for them to overturn this. Our appeal, which we have posted publicly, the, the entire appeal that we submitted to Meta, we are also asking them to address the proven factual disparity in their mistreatment of Palestinian accounts, pro-Palestinian accounts Absolutely. versus Zionist accounts and Israeli accounts that are virtually allowed to say or do anything they want. And studies have already been conducted that show the massive disparity on who's being censored and who isn't. So we asked them to address that in, in our appeal to acknowledge this. So we will see. I, I don't know if I'll ever get that account back. I would like to, to have it back, but there's also a part of me, uh, I was always taught to not go where you're not welcome. I no longer feel welcomed on the platform. At, at this point, I would feel weird even going back to it, having been mistreated by it. We, we generate billions of dollars in money and profits for these platforms. They're using all of us. Yep. So even though I spent that time and even though it was valuable for me to be able to lobby for human rights and civil rights, uh, I feel so disrespected and wronged that I would be conflicted about even going back to the platform at this point. But in terms of like, are you even allowed to have like a backup account? No, I, I've tried. In fact, they not only deleted my Instagram account, they deleted my account for my podcast. I had an account called The Breakdown. That I have a podcast called The Breakdown with Sean King. Mm -hmm. I've had that account for five years. It had nothing to do with any of this. That, that account didn't even make that post. They deleted that account. We had a fact-checking account where we fact-checked misinformation about me. They removed the fact-checking account. So anything I touch, I, I tried to create other accounts, and it appears that they're, they're monitoring it closely or tracking my IP address. Anything I create, they remove, delete, and ban. And so at this point, um, it because many people say, Sean, create a backup account. Look, this person created a backup account. That doesn't work for me. Bringing the podcast to a close, Sean, um, and staying on the, on the subject of censorship and how this particular war on Gaza has actually exposed many things. In the UK context, we've had debates and discussions in Parliament about banning chants like from the river to the sea palestine will be free apparently this is a genocidal statement calling for the extermination of jews from the river to the sea we've had calls to ban the palestine flag in um, public government buildings we've had calls to ban the black islamic flag that has the testimony of faith that's not applied to any group or anything right. uh, we're talking about school kids can't wear badges we've never seen such calls in previous conflicts before what's going on bruv i mean i mean it's, it's crazy because I, I think i think at the root of that's not just censorship it it is this is another again form of humiliation of, of these insulting ways to in essence censor society muslims can't say allah akbar at chance um, at protests because the fighters on October the 7th shouted Allah Akbar. Well, what, what we see is <laughs> Allah Akbar or even something as simple as the word jihad, which yeah. has been demonized to mean something that it doesn't actually mean. Social media, again, 
is allowing us a way to say, no, this phrase or that phrase or this flag or this thing, it actually means something significantly different than what you're saying. You are lying. And before social media, we would never be allowed to be on BBC or be in your leading newspaper mm. and and boldly, clearly say, you're lying and let me say why you're lying and I'm gonna call you a liar in your comments or to your face, but it's disturbing. There are many parallels. While they are disgusted when we make these parallels, they're vital to make. There are many parallels with the treatment of Nazis, of Jews, to what we see now happening with Palestinians in Gaza and supporters of Palestinians around the world. They are, they are basically making it illegal or making it a policy violation for people to even express their support. Uh, my friend and brother Mark Lamont Hill spoke at the United Nations several years ago. Mark was a, at the time I think was the most capable African-American, really one of the most capable people at CNN in general, certainly the most capable black man working at CNN. Mark is multilingual, a world expert. He's a PhD, even though people don't call him Dr. Mark Lamont Hill. Mm -hmm. He was one of the only PhDs at CNN. Mark, this was long before October 7th. Mark literally at the United Nations ended his speech just saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. This is a common phrase that is simply about, in essence, apartheid, how walls and barriers have been created, literal walls, literal barriers, uh, sidewalks that Palestinians cannot walk on. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is about Palestinians being able to freely live and roam over the entire land that once fully and completely belonged to them. It, it has, I know Mark, he is my friend, he is my brother. Mark, is, Mark would never advocate for the destruction or murder of all Israelis or all Jews. It's foolish. It's about Palestinians literally being free that they have attempted to demonize this statement or the flag. They put themselves in a horrible contradictory position and people are calling them out for it because all of these same things are happening with people who support Ukraine where I live in New York to this day. I see Ukrainian flags everywhere. People still support Ukraine. The United States has sent tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine. The EU has just promised 30 billion euros. The UK has just promised another two and a half billion pounds whilst cutting funding from the UNRW. And so while men and women like ourselves say, do you not see the contradiction between people being allowed to have open support for one place being able to wear the flag, wear the colors, discover the chance, and, and endorse and support leaders. We were in Manchester a few days ago, and I talked about how I remember seeing a special on CNN, a, a, a mainstream American news source that was showing Ukrainian women creating Homemade hundreds bombs. of Molotov cocktails. And I thought to myself, any time throughout my entire life and before I was ever born, any time any black or brown person ever <laughs> dared to hold a Molotov cocktail 
You were, you were made out to be a criminal, a monster. You were made out to be evil. Now they're doing a special on women creating hundreds of Molotov cocktails. I have seen videos of Ukrainian children learning guns. how to use weapons and yep. guns, carrying automatic weapons yep. on their shoulders, and it being celebrated. When I have seen my entire life, any child in the Middle East, any child in Africa that ever touched a weapon, any black or brown person anywhere in the world that held a gun was seen as a threat. Now they are hailing. Brother, a kid with a stone is seen as a threat. Come on, man. A brother with a slingshot is seen. A kid with a slingshot is seen as a terrorist. And when we then say, <laughs> you support children with, with rock. In fact, there was a disabled man in the West Bank just about a month ago who was beloved. He was... A, a, a mentally handicapped man that people revered and loved and cherished who threw a single stone over a fence mm -hmm. and they shot him right, shot and killed him right there at that fence. The stone didn't even hit anyone. It, was a, it wasn't a stone, it was a pebble. Mm -hmm. And he barely got it over the fence and they killed him. And it was, the only people that spoke out were us. And so... We at least now are able to call out these disparities, to call out the hypocrisy of it, but it's dangerous. The only thing that I think is saving us is here in the UK and in the United States, the Democratic Party is kind of the American equivalent of the Labour Party, that these parties now see that they are losing voters, not by the hundreds, but by the thousands and tens of thousands. Your members of parliament are understanding how outraged their constituents are, and not just their Muslim constituents. Even at our events on our tour, we have people of every race, yep. every ethnicity, yep. every faith, every religion 100%. saying they are appalled, they are disgusted. So we are finally, a little more so in the UK than in the US, we are finally starting to see politicians say, you know what, I'm changing my view. And, and what those politicians are now hearing is, well, we're still disgusted with you. Apologize for what you said a month ago, two yep. months ago, four months ago. Yep. Acknowledge the wrong that you did. Uh, acknowledge the harm that you created. But finally, politicians are starting to see that this is going to cost them politically. Many of my dearest friends in the United States and in Canada have very smartly scheduled meetings with Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden, Muslims in Michigan, in Canada, only for them to later cancel those meetings to humiliate Joe Biden, to humiliate Justin Trudeau. Big up to them. Yeah, and my friends in Canada did something so brave. They fully scheduled their meeting with Justin Trudeau and waited until he got to the meeting and then said, we're sorry, we're not meeting with you. Respected him. And I, I said last night to our crowd in Birmingham, when a man in Iraq took his shoe off and threw it, both of his shoes off, Bush. And, and threw those shoes at George Bush, not only did I not understand the practice, 
that it, that that was seen as like the height of disrespect yeah, to yeah, take yeah. your shoe. I didn't understand that as a as a young. I think I was twenty years old at the time. You take your shoe off from those from from the Eastern Muslim lands. You hit throw a shoe. That's the worst. Yeah. That, <laughs> so like it's the worst. I didn't understand it, and I didn't even understand. It was never explained to us. Mm -hmm. It wasn't told that way. Mm -hmm. That's the least that Joe Biden would be lucky if all he got was a shoe thrown at him. What he is responsible for makes my blood boil. If if all he gets is a loss in, 20, in 2024, that he, he got off easy. He should be in prison. He should be indicted. Like what he has done is criminal. It is beyond disrespect. I see it as evil. I feel the same about your prime minister. Should Biden and Sunak also be at the ICJ? Oh, they should. And people are afraid. Nations, I, I know because I've talked to members of these nations. Member nations of the ICJ and the ICC are afraid to file these cases because they're afraid of the repercussions. They are willing to suffer the repercussions of filing the case against Israel, but they are afraid for their physical safety afraid for their economic safety and what will happen if they file these cases against their trade partners, against their strategic allies in the U.S., in the U.K. But it is, it is only half true if you just file a case against Israel. There is no genocide without the U.S. and the U.K., and that's not hyperbole or exaggeration. That's not even liberal or progressive that's just factual in, in fact joe biden himself publicly acknowledges over and over again that israel can only do what it does when he argues for more money for israel he says listen they can't do this without us he has said this in essence he's admitting that this is only possible uh, with his support with the uk support with canada's support they should all be charged if it may not happen in 2024. It, it, it may not happen this decade, but eventually, somehow, some way, every perpetrator of this genocide must be held accountable. We should all, all of your listeners and followers and supporters, we should make it our life's mission. And let me tell you who our motto should be. It should be Jewish people who have determined that it didn't matter if a Nazi was 101 years old, if they could find that Nazi wherever he or she was, they would hold them to account. We should use them as our model and make sure every person that's responsible for this genocide directly or indirectly, I don't care if they're old and gray now or later, we should hold them responsible. Final question to close the podcast. We spoke about a humiliating piece. Mm. We spoke about the decades-long occupation, apartheid, settler colonialism, all of that. Can there ever be peace with such an entity? And, no. I'm, talk and I'm talking about the Zionist entity. I'm not talking about the Jews. I'm not talking about the Jewish people who are now living on those lands. I'm talking about the entity, the infrastructure of the settler colonialist project in occupied Palestine. Can there ever be peace and security with such an entity in place? While you were speaking, uh, you may have heard me say no. I, I can't imagine such a peace being possible. 
I'm a, I'm a man of faith, man of hope. I, I think these past four months have squeezed out most of my optimism. And it, it breaks my heart to say that. Because you know, I, the, the truth says solution's done now. Yeah. They, they've made that abundantly clear. We're not interested. Yeah, they, they, so, so. They, what we know is they never believed in even a two-state solution. Mo most Palestinians in Palestine and in the diaspora have always said, well, we actually don't even prefer a two-state solution. We prefer to there, there to be one open state. Yep. And they could still be there, but we're going to have to be there with them. It just has to all be open. It's, it all once belonged to us. We want to be able to return home. Absolutely. I have dear, dear friends whose families still have the keys to their very front doors of the homes they were put out of. Some recently, many generations ago, the practice is still underway. Could there be peace? Nothing is impossible. I, I could imagine if in 1989 we asked, could there be peace in apartheid South Africa if white people still stayed here? I could imagine them saying, no, hell no. Peace is impossible. These, these uh, Afrikaners are evil. They're monsters. And they would have been right to say so. Very few of them were ever even held responsible for their crimes. I I don't know that there truly is peace in South Africa. In some ways, it's it's a humiliating peace in South Africa. And I think you will find members of the uh, Economic Freedom Party and the African National Congress and others would say, no, this is a humiliating peace. This is not fair. This is not just. Is it possible? I, again, I, I think it's important for Palestinians to answer that. I don't know how it's possible. Um, I, I am, I'm irritated that the Holocaust was ever used as the excuse. I, th I think people are learning something new that... I saw just a headline from the year 1899 in the New York Times, 45 years before the Holocaust, where the headline said, Zionists begin planning to return to their homeland. Long before the Holocaust, Zionists were planning to steal this land. So the Holocaust was a moment that they used as their rationale to finally do it. But the injustice is so deep. Um, I think I would say there is a path forward. I don't know that it could ever be a, we would have to define peace. Is peace the absence of violence? Is it the is it is peace simply the absence of of injustice, or does peace mean something more profound? Does peace mean harmony? What I know, let me end with this. I have heard beautiful old grandmothers in Gaza now, who are hungry, starving, thirsty injured say 
that they remember their Jewish friends in this land. They remember their Christian friends. I heard a woman say that she remembered when Jewish children would regularly stay at her house as friends and were treated as family when they were neighbors. They remember a time where there was this, but man, we are so far away from it. Um, I can't even imagine. It would require such deep substantive change, such radical shifts. I can't even imagine how that would be possible. It would, it would require a degree of courage. It would require such radical decisions where I, I see no such decisions being made. Um, it's something that people could dream to be possible, but I, I, I don't see the path there. Israel is now saying that there's not even a path Netanyahu and others are saying there's not even a path to a two-state solution. I have been very careful not to even advocate for a two-state solution because most of my Palestinian friends have said that that's not even their preferred solution. Same. Um, where we go from here is today, while we're still in the genocide, it's, it's hard for me to, to think. The, the first thing that has to happen is the genocide needs to end. A, an immediate total ceasefire has to happen. And I, I want to force us and force your listeners to say there is a sequence, an order to when these things must happen. The ceasefire must happen first. The occupation must end. Not only must humanitarian aid eventually be allowed in freely, but one day we will have to imagine how does Gaza even recover? None of that's even relevant until this ceasefire begins. So ceasefire first, and then we'll just have to go from there. Sean, it's an absolute pleasure having you on. It's my pleasure and my honor, brother. Good and to I, be with you. And I hope I can uh, host you again in your next visit, inshallah. Yeah, I would love that. Take care, Sean. Yeah, thank you, brother. Brothers and sisters and friends, I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's discussion as much as I did. A lot for us to ponder on and reflect on. If you like this episode, do remember to click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. If you're an avid podcast listener, you can find this episode on all three seasons and all the major audio platforms. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. 